and welcome to the Real Rice Podcast, your intro into famous Asian cinema under the modern lens of Asian Canadians. I'm your host, Ray, and joining me are my fellow co-hosts, Brian, hey, and Jackie. What's up? For this episode, we'll be bending our rules just a little bit and be reviewing the 2021 American superhero martial arts film, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Marvel Studios' Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings stars Simu Lu as Shang-Chi, who must confront the past he thought he left behind when he is drawn into the web of the mysterious Ten Ring organization. Shang-Chi must prevent his father from releasing the Dweller in the Darkness that may bring the end of the world. Before getting into the review, let's start with some info about the movie and the general consensus. Released in 2021, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings is the 25th installment in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. The movie is written and directed by Dustin Daniel Cretton, The Glass Castle, and Just Mercy, with screenplay by David Callaham, Mortal Kombat 2021, and Wonder Woman 84. The movie stars Simu Lu as the titular Shang-Chi, Aquafina as Katie, Meng Ozang as Xiao Ling, Fala Cheng as Ying Li, Michelle Yeoh as Ying Nan, Ben Kingsley as Trevor Slattery, and Tony Leung as Wen Wu, the Mandarin. Apologies for any and all mispronunciations I just made. Like many Marvel movies before it, the movie loosely adapts the characters from the Marvel comics. Unlike most of those movies, Shang-Chi and Legend of the Ten Rings doesn't adapt any specific storyline from the characters' back catalog. The plot of the movie is a fleshed-out amalgamation of the characters' origin stories mixed with the Mandarins, as well as are updated for a more sensible, modern audience. As the movie is currently still in theaters as of time recording, we have yet to know of the film's awards or accolades. So far, it's on track to be the highest-grossing film at the box office for 2021, and the highest rated. The only other films that come close to it right now is Sony's superhero outing for the year, Venom, Let There Be Carnage, with the highly anticipated Eternals and Spider-Man No Way Home being strong contenders when they release, the latter two being Marvel Studio Productions and within the same cinematic universe. Professional film reviewer Angie Han had this to say. It doesn't take long for Shang-Chi to lay down its terms. The initial scene of the film are set in China, with the opening narration dialogue entirely in Mandarin, with subtitles. It's not until the action moves to San Francisco, several minutes in, that we hear a single word of English. Even in 2021, when subtitles are hardly an exotic experience for most moviegoers, the choice to use them in the opening scenes of an American blockbuster sends a message. Sang-Chi may be Marvel's first Asian lead character, but he and his family won't be treated as novelties in their own movie. Anji Han, The Hollywood Reporter, 2021. Across the internet, here's the general consensus. 7.9 out of 10 on IMDb, 92% critic and 98% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, 71% critic and 7.6 out of 10 audience score on Metacritic. Our consensus is about an 8 out of 10. In general, we thought the movie was an enjoyable watch, great as it breaks out of the stereotypical Marvel superhero origin story with a non-traditional cast and authentic culture, but still falls short with heavy use of the standard Marvel tropes. Overall, we recommend this film to action genre fans and Marvel fans alike. This is a great movie to just put up and watch casually with friends and family. So pause the podcast right now if you want to be filled in on the discussion. As always, we're going to start off with the story. Alright, with that out of the way, let's get into the discussion. Keep in mind, this will be a spoiler-filled review. Yeah, so I thought that the movie was pretty good. It's not something that's super unique that I've been seeing before. Like, it follows a very typical structure format. But one thing that I really, really enjoyed about the movie was the sense of humor that Aquafina brought. And also the fact that Simu was very good at playing Shang-Chi. Like, not only acting-wise, but as well as, like, his martial arts skills. Not many young actors nowadays have that sort of training or you know, is willing to go through the training to be, like, that well-versed in martial arts. It really, like, reminded me of the old Hong Kong movies and movies of Jackie Chan. 
Yeah, I think I agree. The homage toward Asian film or Asian martial art films in general made it easier, I guess, maybe more palatable to the regular audience being able to say, hey, to the masses, this movie is a fun movie. You get all these choreography, all these fight scenes all work out. And the actors did really well. Simu Liu, I think, played a role really well. The plot-wise, personally, I thought was a little convoluted. I think my personal take was it's still weird that the father was getting all tripped up by the voice and everything. And it, to me, maybe it could have been explained a little better. Maybe is this voice very convincing? Like, is it hypnotic in some way? Because it was just like telling him, it's like, oh, you know, I'm still alive. He saw his wife die. Like, he knows his wife is dead. So, unless the voice is hypnotic in some reason, like, I think he should have been able to, like, say, hey, this is not real, I shouldn't be doing this, especially if everybody else is telling me that this is wrong. I think we'll get into this a little bit later down the conversation, but this movie is, is excellent in a lot of ways, but a lot of other ways it's really lacking. It feels like a movie made during the pandemic, which it obviously is. There's a lot of, like, things that feel like they're missing or things just kind of get rushed through. But where this movie really shines is in its martial arts and, like, the homages to Chinese cinema and the cultural aspects of that in particular. Like, everything else, I kind of give it a buy because of, you know, COVID and production issues. But as long as the core aspect, the martial arts, like, really shot through and the characters did, like, an excellent job working with each other and became likable to the audience, I feel like that's what really elevates this movie across all these other movies that are just releasing now or been held on to because of the pandemic. If, you know, a little more plot could explain things away, I think I would like the movie a little more. Not that I say the movie is bad. I think it's well executed. But at the end of the day, by the very end of the movie, and, you know, we have this whole, like, oh, Ten Rings, tying with the Doctor Strange and everything. I, it brings me back saying, like, oh, this movie is just a origin story for a Marvel Act 4 universe. And it kind of took me out of the movie in a sense like, hey, this movie is just one part in a many instead of a good standalone. Was anybody, like, very um, humored when they were going in the elevator and they got off of that to go to the illegal fighting ring? And then they were greeted by this guy. I think he's played by this comedian. I forgot his name. Ronnie Chung? Yes! Yes, okay. Ronnie Chan. That's yeah. his name. And then it was really funny because he opened a conversation in, like, Mandarin. And then basically, Simu and Aquafina was just staring at him dumbfounded because they clearly... We're not good at speaking uh, Mandarin. So then Ronnie just totally like did a 180 and said, hey, it's okay. I can speak CBC too. I just thought that was hilarious because that's a very like Chinese um, American slang to just throw out there. For those of you who don't know, CBC stands for, uh, wait, no, he said ABC. That's the one. Yeah, Never yeah. mind, he said ABC. <laughs> and for those of you that don't know what ABC stands for, it stands for American Born Chinese. I just thought that was really funny because it's not like a very like common slang used outside of the community yeah i thought that was actually a really good little like thing to include just for like the asian american community like that's something so ingrained into like our everyday slang or how we just kind of perceive the world and culture in general just to have that line thrown there just was kind of nice but to bring it back to the whole idea of like by the end you kind of remember oh this is an mcu movie um yeah the movie tries to do this crazy balancing act between being like this culturally very chinese movie but also a superhero movie and a martial art movie and Sometimes it almost feels like a fairy tale, as well as just trying to be funny and action-packed and like all this. There's a lot going on and there's a lot of things it wants to be. Even though a lot of that stuff works together, a lot of that stuff doesn't. 
And then when you kind of like see Doctor Strange characters, the Abomination, and post credits, you kind of just—it's almost like a letdown to know, like, oh yeah, this is part of like Marvel thing. It's not like its own thing anymore. I'm going to keep seeing these characters is great, but it's going to be like Chung Chi and his cast going to be dragged into other genres. And this is an origin story, and we know that like, how Marvel likes to have one big overarching story in their phases. This just feels almost like filler in that grand story, and not almost like Shang Chi's own story, which is a little disappointing. But I get it. It felt like, oh yeah, this is a filler movie, right? Yeah, and maybe it's my personal take. I always feel like movie, even in part series, they should be almost standalone in its own. You at any point you watch this movie, you should have been like, oh yeah, it has a overarching uh, plot that ties with other movies. But this movie shouldn't make me think like, oh, how does this connect with the overarching plot? It should be standalone. This is the movie. And then later on, when it all connects back together, then great, that's in that movie. But it should be related to this movie. Exactly. It's like that uh, problem Marvel had around, I guess, their second or maybe early third phase where they would introduce origin stories for characters. And if you go to watch a Marvel movie because that's just what you do, if you're not into it, you're going to get bored and you're just going to wait the whole two hours until you get that post-credit sequence, which tells you the sequel coming out. Or, like, ties into the bigger universe. Because I feel like this movie is great and it really connects with me on a personal level. But if someone's not into it or if you just aren't as entranced in the movie, it will become, like, a two-hour slog. Were you waiting for, like, a teaser for the things to come in the future? Another thing I really like about the plot, it's a, I think we all want to talk about it, is the whole Asian-American perspective. Mm. I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but... I've seen other movies like Minari and other movies that are, you know, Asian-American representation in Canada, America. Kim's Convenience is a big one as well. Also uh, starring Simulu. Yeah, that's one also with Simulu. And I think what's interesting is, at least in my personal opinion, is the first time where they actually kind of talked about like the whole like clubbing party scene. Because I feel like that's really talked about in other shows. They usually talk about more like the struggle of being Asian-American in canada america but in exchange i think that's what i really like about shang chi is it actually represented the fun side of being asian american in canada america i think for the big thing about like well at least minari in my opinion is that uh it's more of like an immigration story and like getting settled whereas in shang chi katie is like at least like a second generation asian american and shang chi's been there like more than half his life now so he's pretty like assimilated into the culture and we never really get that aspect of how do, like, immigrant children born in the States or Canada, what are their communities like? What do they do? Do they, like, fully assimilate into, like, the culture as a whole? Or do they have their own little subcultures or activities that are unique to them? And that's something that Shang-Chi does excellently because karaoke is a big thing in all my circles of friends and, like, for all of our circles of friends, actually. Especially that and going to a club and stuff. It was the first time I think I saw me as, like, a person being represented on screen rather than me as a collective with all Asians in America. Yeah. I thought it was really interesting because I was reading a bunch of forums basically on Reddit. Someone mentioned that how during the Shenzhi karaoke scene, they did not sing any Chinese songs. Specifically, they did not sing Tonghua. But, but to play devil's advocate, I felt like it would be just a tad bit odd if they did. I feel like Marvel definitely did play it safe, but I also feel like they should have played it safe. Like if I was a non-Asian person, I would kind of feel a bit weirded out by that. This is a hard one. I think I'm on the other side. I don't remember what song they sang, but Hotel California. I was hotel. Okay, <laughs> that's why. That's why my memory served. And uh, I, I like the song. 
Uh, I wouldn't sing that in karaoke. I've never heard of anyone singing that in karaoke in all my friend circles. Yeah, I think I'm with Brian on this. I wish they sang Tonga because that would have been <laughs> peak representation. Yeah, that's like, that's exactly what I would sing if I was there. Well, not maybe me particularly, but like someone's going to sing it. It's, exactly. it's a classic. Yeah. So like if if you're so bold to do the first 10, 15 minutes of the movie in Mandarin, you know, commit to it, you know, have Mandarin songs in there. Yeah. I think a big part of being Asian American uh, or Asian Canadian I'm just going to say Asian American from now on, just, just to make this easier. Fine. A big part of being Asian American is having that hybrid and having the luxury to pick and choose exactly what you want. So, for example, you might say, you know, I want to sing or learn more about, you know, Korean culture, Asian culture. Uh, and so I like that more. But I also like, you know, going camping, you know, more American thing to do. So you can, you can pick and choose. And that's, I think, great thing that we get as almost like a privilege. And I think it's really interesting they were able to actually show that in the movie as well. Where they got to kind of pick and choose what they like and don't like. You know, like liking expensive cars. I think that's a very... I mean, everyone likes that. But I think liking expensive, fast cars is a more American culture. That Asian Americans kind of picked up on, right? The whole hype beast. On the other hand, you know, karaoke is a very Asian-Asian thing. I feel like the representation of, like, how family dynamics really works well, too. Like, just, like, a small single scene, but the scene with Katie and her family is... I think it's just really powerful, just, like, how her mom's just nagging, oh, you know, why can't you get a good job, blah, 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 responsibility, etc. That's, like, just kind of my mom nags at me, too. But I have a job, mom, leave me alone. And Katie's like, oh, yeah, I don't have a job. You know, I like it more than any other job. I would, like, you would pressure on me. I enjoy what I do. And just having that parental figure nag at her, like, that specific way is just so... So, like, familiar, it's scary. I think what's interesting about that scene is it almost felt too real. Like, having your Asian mom or Asian parent just nag at you. No matter how good you are, they're going to nag at you. Oh, you're not a doctor? Why don't you be a doctor? Oh, you're a doctor? Why don't you go to be a surgeon? Like, <laughs> it's never enough, mom. God damn it. <laughs> and I think it goes to show, like, you know, it's a contrast where Katie has to live in some shadow of her parents. Her parents, you know, I've spent so much effort. You know, you should not just be a valet. And the other hand, you know, the Mandarin expected Shang-Chi to be better than just, oh, you know, wasting your life, quote-unquote, in America, right? Yeah, and, like, Mandarin obviously had a lot of plans for Shang-Chi. Like, you're going to be the best damn assassin in the world. And Shang-Chi's like, no, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, especially in, like, Canada, I feel, or at least the circles I'm a part of, where... Your parents come with a very specific mindset of what their kids want to be. And most times, I don't think that's what really happens. Like, my mom wanted me to be an accountant. I'm definitely not an accountant. Great point there about, like, having a lot of pressure to, you know, perform and succeed in life. Just being, like, an Asian American. Like, I didn't have that much pressure growing up or having to, like, fit a specific mode in terms of needing to be a doctor or engineer or lawyer. But I definitely felt a lot of pressure to just succeed in school and as well as, like, pick, like, a stable career path to go into. But I just want to kind of bring back to that one scene that you guys were mentioning about how, like, Katie's parents were nagging at her. There was also a very, very, like, subtle part of the scene where you guys may or may not miss was when Katie's grandma was asking them when Simu showed up when they're going to get married. And then Katie and Simu had to mention that both of them are friends. The concept of, like, a guy and a girl being friends, it wasn't really a thing in China per se. Like, if you bring a guy over to your home, generally it means that that's your boyfriend. 
even though they don't say that that's your boyfriend, they're implying that that is your boyfriend. Yeah, I think it's easier once you're in a relationship, you have like an official girlfriend, then your parents stop nagging you about other female friends. So it's cool. Must be nice. I wouldn't know how that feel, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Not saying that you had to force yourself into a relationship. I'm just saying I've been in that situation, but once you get a girlfriend, they'll be like, oh, you're too young to get married? Slash, oh, now you should get married. Why are you not married yet? It's either one or the other. It's never like, oh, this is a perfect time for dating. Yeah, that's true. I remember like in high school, my mom was like, you better not be dating someone. And then when I got into university, why aren't you married yet? I'm like, what happened here? <laughs> the timeline is very, very interesting. Like, I think this has set to death that basically, like Asian parents expect you to just not date and focus on your education while you're in school. Then you have to find a good job after you graduate, of course. And then they'll leave you alone for maybe like two, three years so that you get set in your job and just, you know, like be stable and everything. And then after those two, three years, hey, uh, when you get married, I find that to be really, really funny because all through your life, they don't encourage you to date. But then all of a sudden, they want you to get married. And why do you think it's funny? Because I find it blazingly annoying. <laughs> oh, what I just did was start dating anyway, even if my parents said no. Easy problem solved. <gasps> Rebellious boy. What oh. a rebel. Shame yeah. to the family. Shout out to my first ex. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to name her, bud? No. All no. right. All right, cool. Oh, another thing I really like about the movie is, you know, like the whole quote unquote, they think it was like, all right, why are you wasting your life? Why are you wasting your time? Okay. So there was this interesting sociology class I was taking. And a good point was brought up where Asians in America tend to have a much higher post-secondary education. So, for example, let's say uh, Chinese people do have something like 50-something percent of those people have some sort of post-secondary education. I might be butchering the number, but I remember it was something insanely high. But you go back to China, only like, you know, 10-15% has university education. And that doesn't make sense, right? Because in a society, you can't have everybody everywhere be doctors and lawyers you can't run a society where everyone's a doctor except maybe cuba i don't know oh fun little fact everyone doesn't know cuba basically made a lot of people doctors so but because the economy doesn't need that many doctors a lot of doctors are actually like cab drivers in cuba because that makes them more money than being a doctor oh that's unfortunate the expectations for asian immigrants on their children are actually much harsher, I would say, than Asian children in Asia. And let me say that in Asia, it's the school and your peers that are forcing you to perform well. Like you had to do the Gaokao or whatever standardized test. You had to, you know, get admitted to your middle school, to your high school. So these are all the challenges that society has set up. But your parents don't force you as much because they know that the school is, you know, pushing you really hard already. You had to do a lot of schoolwork. On the flip side, when an Asian child is raised in America, because, quote unquote, we have less homework, we work less than they did back in Asia, they see it as us slacking. They feel like we need to push more pressure on our kids so they can succeed in life because obviously school and society is not doing the same for them, right? So it's actually a difference in dynamic where in Asia, a lot of children are actually being quote unquote supported. They're like, oh, you should do well in school, but let me, you know, help you a lot. Let, let, you know, you don't want to do dishes. You don't want to do anything like do that. While 
us here were actually told like, hey, you, sorry, I'll talk about all your homework because you obviously don't have enough. You should learn to do all your housework. You do extra tutoring. You should do X, Y, Z. And that's actually a very uniquely Asian American thing to happen. Yeah, I think like in high school, all my Asian friends were like studying and then we went to prep school and then they had part-time jobs and then they had to like do their chores and then they had to go babysit family members or other people in the neighborhood and then they had to do eight other things and then we could hang out. I'm not saying, you know, Asian kids don't work hard. They work hard studying, but their parents are very much like, you know, let us deal with the housework. Let us deal with all your problems. I want you to just focus, you know, passing that standardized test. Mm-hmm. Just from personal experience, I've noticed from like my friends that are from China that are more like fresh off the boat. They've spent a lot of their time in school and studying. And because of that, they don't have like other experiences such as like a lot of them has never had like a part-time job before. They don't have like other extra responsibilities like doing chores or cooking because all of the energy and time that they've had growing up was spent in studying. Yeah, it's just a different mentality, right? Like how almost like Asians who immigrated to America because they had to work much longer hours. They had to work, you know, 80 hours, whatever, like the whole Asian American story, first generation that Asians actually in general in Asia don't have to work as hard because that's just their society. They are not pushed as hard in Asia versus here in America. Almost like there's something to prove to immigrate. And because of that, they push their children just as hard, right? I've also heard an interesting fact is that the barrier of entry to like the United States, it's actually very high for immigrants. Generally, like if you're immigrating to the state from China, like you're usually a university graduate and you must have worked some sort of professional job. And also you must be somewhat proficient at English. So you generally get people that are of a specific caliber that are immigrants from China. So I think that sort of like overachiever mentality that the person has, and like they have sacrificed so much to immigrate to a new country, they probably pass on a lot of these qualities to their children. I have a different experience. So my parents are neither university graduates, they're actually both just high school graduates doing labor jobs when they came here. They got here because of family relations. And same with actually a lot of family friends we have. They also did not have university education. This story is actually more typical at the 90s and 80s uh, immigration stories where people need low-skill labor through family relations come in. Uh, a lot of Chinatown restaurants are ran by these kind of families where Kim's Convenience is actually a really good show to actually illustrate, you know, these people coming here doing like low-skill labor that nobody else wants to do. Uh, and these immigrants are taking them on, doing two jobs. And from my experience, they equally push their children as hard because they think it's we spent so many hours working so hard 70 80 hours and shout out to my mom she did do 70 80 hours of work for like 10 years while supporting me obviously she pushed me and my sibling pushed us very hard through school and everything and i think that's just the asian american story right and i think not to trails off too far i think you can see the same thing happen in the movie and it's a it's a unique Asian-American perspective. Not Asian, not American. Asian-American. That's an excellent point. And I know we've like devolved a little past like the structure of this movie review podcast, but I just want to add one thing to that. Uh, I read this really great book like about a year or two ago. It's called Chop Suey Nation by Anne Hui. It's a wonderful story about that exact thing where her father and her family came from China and they immigrated to Canada. 
and they worked all these like labor jobs like specifically like running a restaurant like half the book is her interviewing her father and his experiences like doing that kind of work having this kind of mentality and putting it on his children and the other half is exploring small towns in Canada and understanding how like Asians emigrate to these small towns and like how they start these restaurants and how they kind of form a community and like how the old world mentality they're bringing to Canada like applies and it changes and evolves over time. It's actually a very wonderful read for those who are interested in the whole Asian American or Asian Canadian experience. I think for most experiences of people like you know most of their parents did end up immigrating to like the western world like Canada and the United States. Like a good difference to make is that it's a lot easier to immigrate to Canada. Oftentimes in Canada, you won't see immigrant parents working professional jobs. They do end up in like more, I guess, lower wage jobs that includes more manual labor. You know, whether it's working at a factory or working at restaurants and such. That's a really interesting difference between like, I guess, the more American counterparts because I've had like American friends and like their parents were pretty like well off even when they got here and they worked like professional jobs. Whereas in more Canada, like a lot of more of my friends, they had more of a humble background. You know, they work more like laborious jobs, just kind of shows the difference between the two countries and their immigration policies. A big point of like why we're having all these tangents right now is that representation matters, whether it's like ethnic, cultural, or like sexual. There's a reason why a lot of people have been calling this the Black Panther for Asians, because it means a lot to Asian Americans specifically, just having like someone represent us on screen in such like a major motion picture way. And having like a minority character be more visible in the general audiences and just in media just gives you a lot more opportunity for stories for one example, but another example is just like reminding people that there are all kinds of people out there in the world and it takes all of that to make the world. I'm a huge comic book nerd for context and I go on like Reddit, I even like talk to people in person about how they feel about having more characters that represent different cultures rather than your typical Marvel superhero or DC superhero where it's very clearly a Caucasian man who's fairly well off. It's got like this very specific cookie cutter look to him. And as much as people like enjoy seeing more representation there is like a small subset of like people who just think this is pandering and i'm just gonna say that this isn't pandering pandering is having a character who is of color or different orientation in the movie and it doesn't add anything or he or she there's just to fill a checklist but having a character with nuance purpose depth and like growth who is of color or minority that's representation it's just really annoying to see when people have this kind of view towards representation thinking that it's just pc gone mad when it's really about having different opportunities and having people be represented properly on screen because the world is huge. I mean, it's not just Caucasians in America. America is made of immigrants, whether we like it or not. I think on top of that, representation matters just in general, not just to say, hey, you know, look at these culture, these culture exists, but it's also to open the minds of viewers, right? Like to expose them to different cultures, different aspects, or different lifestyles that one person cannot experience in their entire life, right? No one person can, you know, try quote unquote on everything. Like you, like I, for example, cannot be Caucasian. I cannot experience that. But what I can do is be exposed to the culture, to the movies, to understand, you know, what it means. And without that open mindset, I don't think we, as a society, can even grow. Right? We we need to think of us as all as you know one human race where each and every one of us has our own unique culture, instead of saying it's an us versus them mentality. Unfortunately, these days, I think 
politically people has become more divided than ever. I personally think, you know, it's good to have representation because otherwise you also see this foreign idea and you go like, no, I, I've never been exposed to it. This can't be good. So having it happen in media, happen in movie in Hollywood is a good first step toward changing how, you know, the world thinks about certain things. That was great, Brian. Well said. Very deep. <laughs> Very good. What about what I said, Jackie? Huh? All right, let's get back to the movie now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I didn't like was nothing wrong with Aquafina. I think she's amazing and her YouTube's great. But, and I hate saying but, I feel she's being role casted. Like she will be. Casted. She's being typecasted into the role. Where, yeah, she's the fun, quirky, Asian-American girl in Hollywood. Uh, she's a great actor. I just wish there was more diverse representation in terms of these roles. Like, we have multiple of these actors. Uh, and not just be so cut and dry. Like, oh, yeah, you know, we need an Asian-American, quirky actor. Let's put Aquafina in. <clears throat> I happen to know an Asian actress in the industry. And she talked about how it's kind of... Really unfortunate that Aquafina keeps getting typecasted in these roles when there's a lot of other people who are willing to fulfill these roles. Aquafina is a great actress, don't get me wrong, but to see her do the same thing over again is a little stale and as an audience member. And I know she's got much more range. She stars in the movie The Farewell, which is absolutely wonderful. And to bring it back about whole Asian actresses in America to begin with, Menger um, Zhang, this is her first movie role. Like She was a stage actress beforehand, so Marvel could have easily picked up another stage actress or a much smaller actress and put her in a similar role. It didn't have to be Aquafina. A really interesting fact about Aquafina and Simu playing their roles in the movie is that even though like the Western audience did appreciate their acting, and I, I do believe that the Western audience do really like them, Eastern countries like China, they are not too fond of them. As a matter of fact, they even, I guess, to put it blatantly, they do not fit the standard beauty that China has. Too many Chinese audience... Aquafina isn't exactly like pretty and Simu he has a very rugged oldish look to him which is very different than what they're used to they prefer more of the I guess like pretty boy young type boyish actors western has standards of what's beautiful and eastern countries also have what's standard of what's beautiful I think the pinnacle of what a lot of Asian countries think is pretty is basically k-pop groups those are very highly selected. A lot of different countries like Japanese people, Chinese people will compete to be in one of these groups. You know, you look at a very famous group, Blackpink, you know, all these members are actually from different countries. But they have a very selective standard of what they consider pretty. And it is not that similar to Western. So it made sense, in my opinion, that they didn't pander toward Let's get really pretty Asian actresses or actors and actually selected talent that, you know, they thought would best fit the role, what best represented Asian Americans. You know, how, given how many people, I'm sure there's some Korean or some Chinese person that looks very pretty in East Asian standards and that could speak English very well and can still act. I feel there is somebody of that caliber, but it's good that they actually chose people of Asian American descent to play Asian American roles. Yeah, it's kind of neat uh, seeing Simu Lu on screen because he is local to Toronto, and just seeing him in all these local things, and he's got like a very, I won't say generic, but he's got like a very 
Help me out here, guys. I think generic is a decent word. I mean, he's literally in stock photos. Yeah, okay, fair enough. He's got a really generic face. And just to, like, see him, like, kind of pause into this huge Hollywood role, it just doesn't feel very typical Hollywood. And that's kind of appreciated, just knowing that, hey, like, a regular-looking guy is our leading man. That's interesting. That's different. Because the point of movies, in general, is to see a reflection of reality on screen, right? And don't get me wrong. Beautiful people are beautiful. I still like representation on the screen. Again, not saying Siwu is not pretty, just on standards of Eastern standards, he's quote-unquote not pretty, which I disagree. Would you date him? Yeah. Dude, how you... That scene with his shirt off, I'm like... I'm not saying I feel that way, but I'm saying if I felt that way, I'm not against it, you know? I mean, if he's paying for dinner, I'll date him. (laughs) Quite and simple. He doesn't even have to pay for dinner. (laughs) Wow. Oh, one thing to add about Simu real quick. He actually tweeted to Marvel about being Shang-Chi in, like, 2018, 2019. It's just funny to see that he now is Shang-Chi. So that's just a quick little side thing. Oh, how did that happen? He just... He literally just, at Marvel Studios, like, how about some Asian representation someday? Can I be Shang-Chi? And then flash forward, like, three, four years later, here we are. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah, follow him on Twitter. Fun guy. I remember somebody at some point wanted to cancel him for something. Oh yeah, that was uh, that was fairly recent, right after the debut of the movie. Um, he apparently he made some questionable Reddit posts on the subreddit r slash Asian masculinity or Asian identity. I personally haven't read into it completely, but he did come out and apologize, saying that he was younger back then, and a lot more brash, and he's like learned and grown since then, and he took like a step back from social media for a few weeks or months. Do you know what he said by any chance? Um, I think he was just, I think the overall vibe of it was he felt very entitled as an Asian immigrant in this country. Like, he believes that the Asian struggle was above and beyond any other struggle. And something about, like, the Asian race. But I, I, didn't, I didn't read these comments because I just didn't care at the time. So don't quote me on that. Oh, that would be very, very controversial. Yeah, but I don't know if that's specifically about it. So, okay, well, something for the audience to look up. Yeah, that's your homework, guys. I want to <laughs> report on my desk on Monday. So I think we've been talking a lot about the Asian-American actors, uh, Simu and Aquafina. But of course, there are other actors that are actually from Asia, Asia. Uh, what do you guys think of that? Simu is technically like from Asia, Asia. He didn't grow up there, but he was actually like born in China and immigrated when he was like, five or six. So, so yeah, he is very much Canadian, but he's also Chinese at birth. Interesting I, fact. Uh, I, I think if you moved here before you were 10, you're not that much different as just being born here, in my opinion. About the uh, Chinese actors, it's actually, just watching this movie and watching a lot of Chinese cinema growing up, it's always just fun to point and say, hey, I know that guy from a Chinese movie. I know that guy from a Chinese movie. I wish I knew their names. But here are some actors of names I do know. So Tony Lun plays... Uh, Wenwu, the Mandarin, as it were, and he he's just so damn good to watch perform. He's just his performance really elevated the film for me because he's a veteran actor. He's also a veteran martial artist. He's been doing this a really long time compared to Simu, who's relatively new to the scene. So having him play off that is just really interesting to see. I found out that he didn't actually do research on the character of the Mandarin, so he just kind of came at it at his own angle, and that really kind of sold me on his performance too. Like he felt like this character, like to me, on screen he was. Actually, one of the best actors, in my opinion. The way he showed the pain, the way he was like almost stoic as well at the same time, like really sold the character to me. Like I didn't see him 
as Tony. I saw him as the Mandarin. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like for his role, he didn't get that much to work with either. So the fact that he could just like sell this performance that well with such a limited amount of stuff to work on, it's, it's actually incredible. Uh, what other movies has he been in? I think he was in this movie. It's called 2046. He played a totally different character where he was a writer, but at the same time, he was also kind of a playboy. Very, very interesting. Totally different character, but his on-screen charisma definitely carried over to his role as the Mandarin, which totally makes sense. Like, he's been doing this for decades. And speaking of which, 2046 may be a future episode in this podcast. It is very interesting, and I would recommend it. Wait, do you have to watch the movie too, then? Have you not seen the movie? No. Ah, gotta get off this podcast. What? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, speaking of the Mandarin, do you guys know about his comic book origin? No, I do not. Well, yeah, so I mentioned before that I read comic books growing up, but I did have to do a bit of research because Shang-Chi is actually not that big a character. He's like a D-lister, and the Mandarin is like a B-lister, so strap in, guys. If I'm not mistaken, the Mandarin in the comic books is almost racist. No, he is racist. Okay. Shang-Chi is also racist. I didn't I didn't want to call it out saying, like, yeah, this is a straight-up racist, but... Um, I'll open with the Mandarin first. So the Mandarin was created by Stanley and Don Heck. Uh, I'm pretty sure everyone here knows who Stanley is. But just in case, he helped co-create the foundation of the Marvel comic book universe to varying degrees. And for the small minority that you know out there, I also know, don't worry. And Don Heck was credited for creating characters like, or co-creating characters like Iron Man, Black Widow, Hawkeye, and so forth. So immediately, these are two white men in the 50s and 60s who have created a character called the Mandarin. Now, not to blame the creators, but this is kind of a reflection of the whole yellow peril thing of the time and before, and their depiction of a villainous Chinese character. The picture, like the art they drew for the Mandarin is very, almost racist. I'm just saying it's racist. So he had bright yellow skin. He had a very long, thin beard with a long mustache to go with it. He wore lavish robes and had slanty eyes. He was a descendant of Genghis Khan. He spoke in broken English. He was pro-communism. So it's a good thing that Tony took the role and not played that. Yeah, I mean, in the decades since the character's debut, they have tried to modernize him to varying success. I think his like character's origin story now is that he was born during the Communist Revolution to a wealthy Englishman and a Chinese prostitute. And then he wound up in like a cave, found these magic rings, put them on, decided to amass power because he was ashamed of his background and started spreading stories about himself, which is where people think he's a descendant of Genghis Khan. Or he started wearing a lot of weird things to kind of build up clout as like this ominous figure. So they kind of worked in this whole racism angle to his character. So now he's more like a scummy businessman. He's got like a goatee going on, long hair, a suit. Not as racist as before, but still not exactly the best depiction of an Asian character. I mean, I believe Shang-Chi was also... I mean, he started racist, but I believe, you know, they did justice in this time, also not making him a super racist character. Okay, so let's go into Shang-Chi as a comic character. So Shang-Chi was created by Jim Sterling and Steve Egelhart in the 70s, once again, two white men in the 70s. And this was more of like pop culture at the time because you know when bruce lee first debuted 
Yep. Enter the Dragon in like America, it exploded. Like everyone wanted to make like Hong Kong action movies or martial arts movies in general, and this was reflected in all aspects of pop culture. There were like TV shows on kung fu, there were movies on kung fu, there were books on kung fu. So logically, there were comic books on kung fu. Through a bunch of like legal loopholes and whatever, they actually created the character of Shang Chi to be Marvel's Bruce Lee character. So it didn't start off villainously racist like the Mandarin, but he was just literally Bruce Lee in Marvel Comics. He looked like Bruce Lee, he dressed like Bruce Lee, he did the hotas like Bruce Lee. He was literally just Bruce Lee. He's Bruce Lee with a name change. Actually, definitely. (laughs) So the name Shang-Chi derives from a bastardization of like some Chinese characters. Shang? Yeah, Shang. Okay, Shang. Meaning ascending, so like sang in Cantonese, and qi, which is, you know, a stereotypical and culturally significant, like, energy in Chinese text. So that's what his name means, well, to Marvel, like, oh yeah, ascending energy, but that's not really, like, anything in Chinese culture as a name. Yeah, that's a weird name when you think about it. Yeah, it's it's not even a name, it's just literally two words thrown together. But they probably pick better letters in the Chinese name now, right? For his uh, Yeah, so right before the debut of the movie, uh, Marvel made an announcement of what uh, his new name is. So phonetically in English, it still sounds like Shang-Chi, but in Chinese, it's... I don't know if I can pronounce that properly, Jackie, so you're going to cut yeah, in when I say yeah, it. Yeah, it's okay. Um, so they gave him a last name, so it's not just two characters, so that's normal. So it's Su Shang-Chi? Yeah, Ray, it's actually uh, pronounced as uh, Xu Shang-Chi. I think it loosely translates to esteem perseverance. Yeah, so it's great that like Marvel took the time and energy to actually update this character in like little more nuanced ways like that too. Because Shang Chi is actually not a big thing in the comics. He's it's pretty low tier. He shows up randomly. Um, for the movie's plot and structure, it actually follows his origin pretty closely. Like he was raised to be an assassin by his father, who wasn't the Mandarin. It was it was a character formerly known as Fu Manchu. <laughs> That's very racist. He defected from Paul's organization and dedicated his life to taking it down. So there is that connection for, in the movie. But he didn't defect and move to San Francisco. He actually moved to the UK and joined MI6 as a part of their martial arts spy program. So you know, there's a bit of differences here. But what they've adapted from the movie is actually wonderful. I think it took a lot of like those weirder, not-so-great elements and kind of streamlined it a bit for a modern audience. I see. So they took more of the good parts and... Dump the bad parts. Yeah, like, as a kid, even growing up, when I was reading comics and I saw Shang-Chi, like, that guy feels kind of racist. Cause just he... a little bit. Yeah, just I mean, a little bit. Asian character doing kung fu, okay. Do you know every Asian person knows kung fu? I mean, I know, I mean, we're all black belts here after all, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> but, you know... <laughs> but, like, stereotypically... Is kind of true. I feel like a lot of people, at least growing up, I knew did do martial arts. Like, I did martial arts for a little bit. I think Jackie did too. I definitely did. I, I feel like it's just very ingrained in our culture. I mean, like, martial arts is only, like, not only used for self-defense, but, like, it's also, like, useful strengthening of the mind and body, right? Like, think of it like dance lessons for, for Asians. That's how I like to think of it. I mean, Asians can dance too, so... <laughs> it's because they're so good at kung fu. Like it's, it's all like interweaves. It's all it's all combined. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the it's the whole package. It's a sweet deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Raymond, did you do kung fu growing up? Oh yeah, you you damn know well I did. Got to black belt actually. Like actually? Yeah, actually. Oh shit. <laughs> hey Ray, I so just want to call you out there. Like there are no black belts in kung fu. Oh, you're right. It was taekwondo. My bad. I mean, it's still pretty impressive. 
Sure. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that idea of like technique more so than like fighting in Asians just doing kung fu. It's it's kind of like that opening scene in the movie where the Mandarin and Chung Chu's mom do like that martial arts routine that felt very much like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, where they're almost like rhythmically dancing but also fighting. I think it's interesting. Uh, it was almost like a representation of what they call like a more hard hitting style, and then the mother is more like the more Tai Chi kind of style. Yeah. Actually, I feel like that part was a little bit pandering. And hear me out on this. Okay. I think in Asia, especially in China, a lot of people would not say Tai Chi is actually good for self-defense. They say, oh, Tai Chi, you know, you're a good Tai Chi master. You'll you'll be really good at self-defense and things like that. And as a culture, I know my parents do has almost romanticized the idea of like, oh, just transferring energy and stuff like that. Um, not that it has no merit when you're learning martial arts. They tell you, you know, it's sometimes easier deflecting than like taking a hit straight on. But Tai Chi takes it to another level. They say like, oh, you know, this is like actually the best kind of martial art in China. I don't know if you ever heard of the the theory, but like there's in China, some people say, oh, Tai Chi is the pinnacle of martial arts. But Truth be told, there is unspoken truth. We all kind of know Tai Chi is not great for self-defense. It's closer to like yoga. It's the most powerful martial arts techniques that all the grandmothers do at the community center in the mornings. (laughs) The most powerful. Yeah. Brian totally just hit it on the spot when it comes to shedding light on Tai Chi. It's even though uh, Tai Chi masters, they kind of promote that, you know, Tai Chi is great for self-defense. It's great for exercise. It's great for health in general. Like they are right. Like to a specific extent, yeah, it can be used as self-defense, but it's more so for exercise in today's world because people nowadays, they know what type of martial arts are effective. And generally speaking, it's more towards the non-traditional martial arts, like kickboxing and such. And like even China, they have their own like kickboxing variant. It's called Sanshou, which is basically the practical form of like traditional martial art that the Communist Party used during World War II. Uh, One thing I did as a kid, I did uh, Wing Chun. You've seen it, man. That's like the whole thing. Yeah. Um, But even I remember in my Wing Chun lessons... Uh, sometime the instructor will come in and go like, today we're going to do a more practical lessons. So instead of all these cartwheels and flips, I'm going to teach you how to like just block a strike because that's sometimes more important. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. There is some romanticization over like more traditional martial arts. Like, oh, this is great for fighting. But really in some way there are flourishes. Like, oh, you're just kind of showing off like your agility and stuff like that. But and when it comes to like face to face fighting, it's all about like keeping your arms up. Because if you've ever done Wing Chun starting position, your arms or your fists are actually at your waist. And that's going to be no good in a fight, let's just say that much. For like a more media and narrative perspective, the idea of like strength versus technique is why what I've always interpreted is why that is always shown as the clash. The Mandarin's so strong, he can like punch a hole through a mountain, but he can't stop this woman rhythmically moving and deflecting her attacks. So, like, narratively, I think it makes sense. In real life, it makes no sense. You know, shout out to my old martial arts teacher. The best way to defend yourself is just run away. And you've been doing enough cardio in these classes, you can run away pretty fast. Ah, uh, yes, the Joestar secret technique. <laughs> but if you do one more practical, like, striking martial arts, I personally really like uh, Muay Thai kickboxing. 
That's actually very, very spot on because this one guy, he is a Marine veteran. He's also a top tier martial artist in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I believe he's got like a black belt in it. His name is Jaco Willink. He's also like a very big author on like mental discipline, self-defense, exercise, and all that. He mentioned his experience in the Marines and just in life in general. The best self-defense is to run away. And he also is an advocate of like a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu when it comes to just trying to like not hurt someone, but to constrain them. What do you think of martial arts in this movie? Yeah, I think it was good. Some of the posing stuff were good, but of course it's very movie martial arts mm-hmm. like no one will do some of those things in real life some of the poses like with the arm all the way back or like you know the whole tai chi diverting energy and stuff like i'm like i get it this is just how martial arts are shown in film but uh, and it makes better cinematography but it's not true martial arts it's for some parts of it I wouldn't say it's not true martial art exactly. I would say it's it's not true practical martial art. That's it, a good point. It sides a lot with a lot of the more demonstrative aspect of martial art. Like I would say all the fancy things you see that they do, like where a very good scene from the movie was when uh, Simu was like fighting against the Ten Rings members. Like, he did a lot of incredible stunt moves. He had one where he was doing a split in midair and he kicked two people at the same time. And then he was throwing all these spinning back kicks, flips and all that. Which is very like Wushu-like style fighting. That's very classic Hong Kong cinema. And which I, I was very, very impressed by. Like I, I was amazed that like Marvel was able to incorporate that in their like action sequences. I, I kind of take movie fighting and real fighting as two separate entities. So just seeing like this Hong Kong style of martial arts represented in a Hollywood feature was just a huge treat to see. Because a lot of the major fight sequences are just homages to actual Hong Kong cinema. In the beginning, when Wen Wu meets his wife, like that's just a big crouching tiger hidden dragon homage. When Shang-Chi was on the bus and Kitty was driving around, that's just Jackie Chan in Police Story 1. In Macau, when they were fighting on the scaffolding, that's returned to the 36 chambers of Shaolin. It's just seeing all those, like, classic movies being reinterpreted for this movie and, like, paying homage in such a way. It's just, it's just really cool to see. I guess what I'm annoyed of is the romanticization of these martial arts in Asian cinemas where, you know, they're showing almost impractical martial arts. And I think it gives off the wrong message to people who want to learn self-defense martial arts. I think the big problem there is that regular martial arts isn't very dynamic or interesting to film. Because when you see like a martial arts contest or like a bar fight or just wherever you see fighting in general, I wouldn't know. But it's not as dynamic. It's not very interesting. It's kind of like too visceral and like just not pleasant to really watch. So like movie realism and realism are just two separate things. So to me, seeing like this more extreme take on fighting, it's... That's everywhere, and like I kind of like that. Like, if I want to see a fight, I can just go watch a real martial arts tournament. If I want to see like a movie fight, show me a really good movie fight. You know, go all out. No shaky cams, no cuts, no editing. Just let me see the most over the top possible punch this guy can throw. You know, go all out with it. Like, if you want to watch, you know, a proper fight, you know, you watch MMA. Yeah, exactly. UFC stuff like that. There are avenues for proper fights. Like you mentioned earlier, that you think movies are a reflection of reality. I don't really see it that way. Movies are like an interpretation or maybe an idealization or fantasization of a reality. And if that's the case, show me a fantasy fight. Show me something incredible that I can't see anywhere else. That's why I go to the movies. If I want realism, I can watch the news. 
Just turn the channel seven at seven o'clock. Exactly. What's going on in the world today? My I'm... God, put on a movie. This is awful. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's important though that movies do reflect reality. So it's like Asian American representation. But as you say, you know, also there is a fantasy element. Otherwise, we're just watching the news, right? Exactly. And tie this a bit more into like the production side of the film. Did you guys know that? Marvel movie action scenes are directed separately from the main movie. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, um, this was kind of brought to light mostly with Avengers Endgame and Black Widow, where I think Marvel is trying to ask like this more indie director to direct Black Widow, but she had a lot of protests against the idea of her not being able to develop the action scene. In fact, I think she went as far to say like most of the action scenes in that movie were shot before she was even signed on to like do the rest of the movie. Like they were made in advance. Interesting, but how would you know what the plot would be for the fighting scenes? They kind of give like a rough outline of what they want, and then the director and writers kind of come in and spruce it up. So executive team and the production team know that we're going to have a helicopter fight at some point. So it's up to the director and screenwriters to get us to that point where these characters are in a helicopter fight. I'm not fully sure if Shang-Chi employed this tactic, but given Marvel's track record is just to do this, I feel like they did, but... The fact that it blends so well with the rest of the movie kind of shows how great this is as executing it. I think this is probably at its most like blatant when you see the final fight of Shang-Chi in the mystical village, where despite this being very blatantly a martial arts movie first and foremost, the last action scene is this big CGI cluster of monsters and dragons and energy beams and blue lasers and stuff like that. I was actually a bit thrown off and slightly disappointed like it didn't ruin the film for me but it definitely like took out at least like one point from the overall score of it like i was really looking forward to like a final fight where like he's fighting like the mandarin and they will have like a martial art showdown i wish there was more of that mandarin versus shang chi fight instead of just now them fighting mystical monster for so long like i get why it has to be mystical monsters because the plot doesn't make sense otherwise, but I wish that fight was longer and the whole fighting monster thing could have been a little bit shorter because it kind of took me out of the movie as well. It felt like, okay, we're definitely back in the superhero genre, but it just didn't vibe with me. <clears throat> the person I watched this movie with, we both had similar opinions too. I feel like the big bad behind that gate, he's got an army of monsters, sure, but that guy should have been probably like a humanoid creature of new martial arts like a demon lord or something not a dragon thing wannabe because then we can get this cool like father-son martial arts team up against them because you saw like how they blasted the rings back at each other back and forth like that could have been an excellent scene for some really creative like martial arts or big air quotes movie martial arts oh that would have been really cool exactly. kind of like maybe the monster came back and it's like almost like a um what what they call when you can morph into anything like a shapeshifter yeah like shapeshift into like the guy's like dead wife but like a more monstrous version they had to like fight him you know exactly I mean? like i think my friend said specifically he wanted like a wenwu slash shangchi kamehameha attack with the rings <laughs> blasted at the monster because like they could bounce the rings around that you saw an like, energy yeah blast. that's true and then just like oh i guess this is not happening anymore yeah right? like it was actually a really huge letdown that in this martial arts movie the final monster was just a monster yeah, it would have been really cool if, like, it was a humanoid that, like, understood thought and came out and was like... Like, I'm gonna shoot you guys some real kung fu. <laughs> some demonic kung fu. Yeah, right? And, like, maybe, like, the monster had, like, super speed or something like that. But then, like, 
the, the power of son and father, family. United. Yeah, family. <laughs> Tradition, honor. Yeah, and then like maybe like kind of like in their mother's spirit or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Something like that, right? Because that they are in the spiritual land. Yeah, it would have been so cool, but that's uh, not what happened. You should have wrote that ending. <laughs> oh, no. I, I feel like the problem with the ending is. I mentioned this earlier, this is a movie made in the pandemic, so I feel like because of the restrictions and everything, certain elements had to be changed or rewritten or taken out entirely, because throughout the movie, there's these little parts where I felt like there's a scene missing, or this doesn't feel right, or this is like something stapled on due to problems, because, well, we just talked about the big monster fight that none of us liked, and it felt like it should be in Kung Fu Attack, but do you guys know how uh, film production is done for reshoots? No, actually, can you explain? Okay, so I don't know too much either, because I'm just a hobbyist at the end of the day. But there's this one thing that I've noticed a lot, especially for movies made in pandemic. Dialogues delivered between characters. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the camera will cut to the actor standing in front of the background? Nothing's going on in the background, or if it is, it's like blurred or slightly out of focus. The actor is just very plainly delivering his lines or her lines. And then the response is reverse shot a different actor in a different neutral background delivering their lines and it cuts back and forth between this method. Yep. Yeah, so typically before COVID, that's like a reshoot thing where like, oh, this is just like some incidental dialogue that we don't need everyone here for so we can kind of do that in like small portions but after watching like Shang-Chi, James Bond, Venom and all the other movies and theaters right now after the pandemic that this is being done a lot to deliver a lot of crucial dialogue. A lot of the time in the mystical village where Michelle Yeoh is explaining to all the other cast members, well, this mystical realm and the mother and the father and stuff like that, a lot of that dialogue is done in that manner. So you can tell, like, they couldn't get all the actors there. They had to, like, film what they could and rewrite things accordingly so they could do it in that shot-reverse-shot manner. So I feel like a lot of this movie, there's just scenes or things changed missing just because of that. Yeah, there's a lot of arbitrary constraints. Reminds me of my job. Um, I work as a software engineer. Sometimes you go in, approach a problem, you're like, oh, this is actually really simple. This is really easily solved. But then you get some arbitrary business or logistical or architectural constraint and you get multiple of them and now your solution is like super weird because you have to like still get to the solution but have to also get around all these arbitrary constraints. So, you know, as you said, like a lot of movies had to do these reshoots because they had this arbitrary constraints like oh yeah this covid right now this month we can't have five people in the studio at the same time something like that right or next mm-hmm. month's like oh now we could do 10 or something yeah so probably because of production schedule and everything there's like oh yeah these scenes will just have to suffer later, exactly right? i this is my personal opinion to bring it back to katie's family in that one scene where we get to see them all with shang chi in it katie's grandmother said something to the effect of oh we leave a seat open for my dead husband and shang chi's got this weird look on his face i always assumed that meant in an earlier draft of the script Shang-Chi is sent to San Francisco to kill Katie's grandpa, but neither that happened or didn't happen, and now they're friends. I felt like that was, like, the plot that was supposed to tie those two characters deeper together that just isn't addressed. Because he does deliver this heartfelt speech of him going to San Francisco to kill someone to Katie, but it just fizzles out. Oh, yeah, I actually thought it was a grandfather. Exactly, right? But... Was that actually never explained in the movie? No, it wasn't. They just moved on from it. Because I felt like there should have been a bigger resolution there where the two characters got into a big conversation or fight about it. But it just felt huh. like there was a missing piece there. You're right. I not, Without you mentioning that, I totally forgot that they never mentioned who he was, was sent to kill. Yeah, maybe, you know, like they didn't have time for reshoots or anything. Exactly. Right? And they were yeah. like, okay, we could just take this out. Or it might be like a more director's cut. Maybe the movie they felt was too long. 
could be anything. It could be any arbitrary constraint, too. That's true, but I just feel like there's a lot of, like, missed things in this movie that just kind of make it suffer in the end. Yeah, I agree. To add to the whole missing scenes idea, I feel like there are a lot of themes that were also just not fully represented on screen on time, or just, like, a lot of subtext, not literal text. Because Shang-Chi basically betrayed his family to live his own life in the States, which is kind of the most ABC thing in the world in some way. Growing up as a CBC... I was always told that family is the most important thing, even when they're not treating me correctly or like pushing expectations that I don't feel like my own values or just do things I generally don't want to do. So I do what anyone would do in that situation, like Shang-Chi, like leave or break free from that. And that's like a thing that I feel like a lot of CBCs that I know of at least have internal conflict with is sticking with family, the right thing to do when it's a responsibility I don't feel I should have or a bit of pressure that I don't want or should be expected to fulfill instead of living my own life, a much more American or North American kind of lifestyle. It's like a trap between two worlds kind of thing that I wish that was in the movie, just to know how Shang-Chi felt about betraying his whole family, is like everything he ever knew just to do this thing on his own. Speaking of that, there was a good TikTok video I was watching about how Asian-American struggle with their parents in terms of relationship is a very common thing because unlike being in Asia or being in America immigrant versus this generation is there is a struggle and a clash of culture and it's one of those things where that clash where your parents expect you to say oh you need to take your family you need to do these things and you trying to figure out like i don't even know what i want with my own life this culture is very different from how you grew up it's a different world and it's unfortunate that i would say a lot of asian americans in general have some sort of conflict in some way with their Asian parents. That is a very well-known thing. I have not met many people where they have no conflict with their parents in the same way. I'll just say like Caucasian people, like Canadian people. I see, you know, they're very close with their parents. Like they can joke around with them. They can open up to them. But uh, speaking for myself, like it's, it's hard, right? It's hard to speak with your parents in that same manner because throughout your entire childhood you know they always demanded respect you know they always demand like whatever i say is law and whatever you think doesn't matter it's i guess the irony of thing is like for asian parents to kind of immigrate to you know the western world and to expect their children to abide and follow the same cultural norms as their home country right the same internal struggle like is felt throughout the asian community my parents are separated and like they both got remarried and then my mom married a white guy, right? It's really interesting to see the cultural differences now that like I've been part of the Asian household and like a semi-white household. I feel like Caucasian people are generally at a certain age when they notice that, oh, the kids are like adults. At that point, they treat them as adults and they respect their opinion and in quotation, majority of the choices that they make and they don't really like, I guess, enforce their own opinions on them they give more suggestions whereas like asian parents they're more uh, what i say is kind of like the law type of thing there's a very very big difference i mean you see this struggle with the immigrant and then the child asian child being brought up very very strict parents uh was given no freedoms yeah it's, it's really unfortunate it's like this weird and awful situation on both sides because i assume a lot of these asian parents who immigrated to canada they work a lot of long hours, a lot of crappy jobs, and then there's a lot of frustration and anger there. Not to say that Asian children are being abused, that's not what I'm trying to say. It's more like 
it's hard to fault the parents all the time knowing that but it's also really hard on the asian child because they're bringing an overall mentality and all this frustration into an environment trying to raise a child it's not healthy i would use the word abuse right like not maybe not intentionally but neglect is considered a form of abuse i suppose but i feel like that's just such like an old world china kind of parenting style i know like a lot of my friends' parents and my parents were raised that way, like my grandparents, and it goes all the way back as far as they can remember. It's just like, it's an abuse if it's so heavily ingrained into the cultural style of raising a child. I think it's different, though, because in Asia, you kind of know, like, oh, all these people and all your friends are also being raised the same way. So, like, there's no, like, social difference when you're among your peers. I think here it's different, right? Like, you see... No, you had to live one way, but everybody else is not. And on top of that, you, unlike even in Asia, you're expected to become successful, which is actually not true in China. Not like they don't want their children to be successful, but it's not like, oh, it's pinnacle. You become doctor, lawyer, engineer, etc. There's this one thing I read recently, and this maybe applies to all immigrant families from other cultures, but there's this weird mentality where the child's success belongs to the family, but the child's failures are their own. And that kind of like messes with your brain a lot. Because if you got into a good school or a good job, your mom or dad will take credit for it. But if you bomb one test, they call you a failure. Yeah, that is uh, that is too real. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, I brought up just to mess with you specifically. Oh, man, I, like, I'm messed up. Like, uh, I'm just going to say my parents definitely see my success as their success. Uh, which is ironic because growing up, they always called me a failure. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you're a failure and, you know, this is your problem. And I had, it taken me a while to get over. I, I would personally say trauma almost at this point, but I think I'm over it now. I have a decent relationship with my parents and that took a long time, but I think it's still that mentality. Like, for example, I still don't have a copy of my degree <laughs> on my wall. They have my degree on their wall. And same with actually all my trophies or achievements throughout my entire lifetime. It's in their bookshelf. I actually have nothing. Actually, we are filming this in my apartment. And I think other than those work things, which I never showed my parents, I have no achievement in my academic life. It's funny to let you know that you're not missing out on much. Like I have my university diploma. It's framed. But then like it's been sitting on my coffee table for like two years now. I framed mine on my wall. <laughs> hey, I don't have that option. So. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, you could have just ordered a new diploma. Legally, you're not supposed to. Doesn't that cost like thirty dollars? No, it costs more. Actually, oh. you're only supposed to order another one if you lose it. Yeah, you lost yeah. it in your parents' house. Just tell them you, <laughs> you lost it. I guess, but I, I think I'm just trying to address the general point of you know, success is your parents. But failures are your own. Yeah, it, it really hurts. But I'm this arguments with my family. Like, if you want to take my successes, you have to take my failures. Just, just to add to that, um, there's actually a good Chinese proverb. It goes like, Which, yeah. Um, uh-huh. no, which basically translate, translate to, okay. every family has a hard book to memorize. And this applies here how? <laughs> So the proverb is trying to say every family has histories or issues that you had to memorize what are the procedures to proceed or how to engage with your family. Like, oh, you know, quote, unquote, my mom doesn't like X thing. So I had to memorize that I cannot do this in front of her. 
Oh, okay. It's kind of like that um the more American thing where it's if you don't raise a child like supportively, they will memorize your habits and work around those habits to rebel or something. Yeah, like yeah. Um, but in Chinese way, I guess there's a difference in culture. The Chinese proverb is trying to say like, "Oh, this is normal. Everyone, every family struggles. You have to remember every rule and procedure not to annoy your parents." Your way of saying it in a more you know American way. It's trying to say, like, oh, it's the parents' fault the child is, like, raising I, I think what I want to really say is, like, you have to take both. Don't pick and choose what you do or do not support. Like, think of your child. With. You can't say, I'll take my child's successes, but they're their own failures. I want right. them to take both. And that's, like, something a lot of parents and maybe across all cultures don't really see. And I think the Chinese way of saying it is trying to say, like, oh, yeah, this is normal. As a child, you had to memorize what doesn't piss off your parents. Oh, that's really annoying. <laughs> So it's it's a weird like collective versus like oh you should own your failures as a parent right that's true that's more of like the whole east versus west kind of mentality anyway yeah like collective versus um, individual and you know I've come to terms that let's be honest our parents our grandparents every single parent in history no one's perfect we're all humans no one wrote a guide on how to perfectly raise a child because have you heard of this thing where if there's more than one book in doing something it means there is no correct definitive way of doing something damn you just kind of shattered the whole parenting's help book oh yeah 100 i'm not saying you shouldn't read a book i'm sure one book is better than no books but <laughs> it's kind of like there's no true right way of doing things but there's a lot of wrong ways of doing things I feel like it's just so hard to, like, be a parent, too. I'm just playing devil's advocate here, right? It's, like, ignoring all Western and Eastern culture. You don't get to pick and choose your kid, right? Like, you don't know their quirks, their strengths, and weaknesses. So it's so hard to have, like, one set manual to teach you how to be a good parent. I feel like to be a good parent, you you first of all need to understand yourself. And you kind of have to understand, like, your child to, to kind of play around his strengths and weaknesses and, and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, one big takeaway I got from my dad, you know, I think actually my dad was the better parent between the two. My dad said to me, you know, I want to raise my kid without severely beating him because I was severely beat as a kid. And what he told me is whatever I'm doing wrong as a parent, I'm sorry, but I don't know what I'm doing as a parent. This is like, he admit this like later on in life, obviously. Oh, okay. Like, damn, as a child saying that's Nah, 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 as a child. He's just like, as a parent, I'm, I'm sorry if I raised you incorrectly in some way that I didn't understand your feelings. I just know that I, when I was a kid, I hated when my dad beat me to the point I couldn't walk. So I would, I did not do that to you growing up. I'm like, okay, thanks, dad. <laughs> <laughs> huh. But I think his whole point was, you know, it's whatever you really disliked about your parents in terms of parenting. Just remember that and don't do that to your kid. And what you did like about your parents. Like, I like my, how my dad, like, shared all this, like, tidbit of knowledge and stuff. I wouldn't take that along and give that to my kids as well. And I think if we all do that little part, eventually people will be better parents. Hopefully. Also, if you do want to become a bad parent, there's an amazing book on Amazon. Wait, what? <laughs> Wait, what? It's called... Uh, actually, I think I have a copy. Hold Wait, on. what? Oh, I get it. It's so that you don't do any of those stuff, right? Yeah, Brian is currently going through that bookshelf that I couldn't see this whole time when we were recording. Yeah. So, 
Why do you have... <laughs> if you ever want to know how to traumatize your kid, there is a book called How to Traumatize Your Children with Seven Proven Methods to Help You Screw Up Your Kids and Deliberately and with Skill. Great ideas, you know, like... You know, talk about, like, trauma denial. Um, yeah, my mom did that. Yeah, like, you know, be unreliable to your child. Hey, my dad did that. <laughs> uh, you know, chapter three, your child, your property. Hey, that's both of their opinions. <laughs> They're the same as basically a dog. Like, yeah, I, you know, I think it's a amazing book. And obviously, I'm joking about saying, oh, you should follow this book. The whole point of this book is you read through it so you don't do those shitty things. Is to... it like a table of content? So you don't do those bad things to your kids. Yeah, I'm really interested. For the audience members, um, we're Jackie and I have taken the book and we're going through it in disbelief. Oh yeah, it's a great book. Uh, would you mind reading like the first 10 chapter titles? Alright, so introduction. Trauma with a Purpose. Second, Building the Foundation, Dynamics of Universal Trauma, Parent as a Controller, Your Child, Your Property, Parent as a Pusher, Your Child is a Honor Student, Parent as Narcissist, It's All About You. I'm not going to go forward with the rest of them, but you get the point. Hey, my mom wrote this. Look. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But yeah, it's... uh... You want to be a not bad parent. I'm not. I don't know how to be a good parent, but I think not to be not bad parent. I think this is a great book. <laughs> huh? Yeah. yeah, I know. And you're reading through this, you're like, "Wow, my parents should have read this as a." Or maybe they did. Yeah, maybe they read this and they're like, "Oh, so this is how she raised my kid." <laughs> they bought it at the wrong book at the bookstore. <laughs> they were like, "How to raise child? Excellent!" And they just kind of took it at that. Uh, yeah. So. Oh, it's only $12 online. Oh, yeah. It's a great book. Um, totally recommend it. I love it. I might just maybe give it another read. Huh. Um, if you ever up to be a parent, maybe it's a good time to read a book. Anyway, moving on. Interesting fact. The Chinese government are thinking of banning the movie from China because they feel that it sets up for negative stereotypes when it comes to representation of Chinese people on film. Uh, yeah, I think it's interesting that they have decided, you know, the representation, you know, how, quote, unquote, the people are being raised, maybe. <laughs> um, I think at a very high level, this is what I interpreted it as. It's, um, so Wenwu, the Mandarin, is very traditional China. He represents traditional China. He is thousands of years old. He's got this strict parenting style he speaks fluent mandarin almost all his dialogue is like that he's very very culturally presumed to be a chinese character and shang chi his rebellious american son has betrayed him and gone to the states and i think at a very abstract level china is banning it for the reason of america fighting china and america wins at the most highest level possible that's i think that's one of the reasons why they don't like it yeah, that's a. I I don't see it that way, but I I don't know. I mean, China bans anything and everything. Yeah, that's true. But you know, also ghosts. They ban ghosts. The pictures of ghosts on screen. They ban stuff like that. Like I think this just happened recently, right? Because I've seen mentions of Chinese horror films, and there's really no depictions of like any ghosts anymore. I heard actually recently China has also banned pretty boy actors in media not bad but like lesson mm-hmm. yeah it's uh, the idea roles. of like not feminizing masculinity or something yeah and so they're 
adding back macho masculinity men into their media because they think that's the reason people aren't having kids in china it's it's all i think it extends to even like homosexuality too right yeah yeah i believe they believe it's like the feminine male is i don't know i don't know what they're thinking yeah but, but I, I think it's just funny that shang chi of all things is being banned in china <laughs> Honestly, I could see China reverting back to what they were 30 years ago and slowly ban more and more things on the outside until they create their own like internal thing, right? The Great China Firewall back up. It's, it's funny that you mentioned that, and this is going to be pretty off topic, but there's this great little DC comic book run called The New Superman by Jean Lun Yang, a Chinese-American comic book writer. And the whole premise of the story is China is fed up with American superheroes. They're going to make their own Justice League. <laughs> and it's actually a wonderful read. I have almost the entire collection. It's fantastic. If you like the idea of an Asian superhero, like learning what it means to like be culturally ingrained in Chinese culture and even a little bits of American culture and how those two interact, give it a read. It's wonderful. On top of that, it being banned in China, it was also not well received by certain Western critics as well or certain you know Western people. Uh, mainly, I think we briefly touch upon uh, pandering, but also there were people who were dissatisfied with the film. When I was like looking up stuff online about this movie, and I checked the IMDb message boards, there were a lot of like one, two, three star reviews for the movie, and a lot of them kind of cited the same things of well, a there was that bit of, about pandering, but more interestingly was about like how the story didn't make any sense, or they didn't understand why these two characters had conflict, or why these things mattered, and that's comes across as really tone deaf as not understanding other cultures or other kinds of conflict that the audience wasn't as familiar with it doesn't even have to be cultural but it's just the fact that like Shang-Chi's dad was forcing him to be an assassin not forcing him to be a doctor, lawyer, or engineer, but forcing him to be an assassin to take the lives of others that sort of training done to a young kid is Borderline abuse. Well, actually, not borderline. It is abuse. Or is so, it? <laughs> You're going, ah. <laughs> like, I feel like in any culture, that is basically abuse. So I- I'm not sure why the person commented that way. It just seems very invalid to me. Yeah, it wasn't just one person. It was like several people. I'm, I'm just genuinely confused. It's like that same perception that the Pixar short film Bao received. Really? That short film was so cute. Yeah, no, there was a lot of like online discourse why people just didn't understand it at like any level. Like I don't really like I think they took it too literally. Why is there a man version of the bun walking around now? Oh no. Yeah, like I feel like there's a lot of like things like that, which is why what makes representation matter so much that you have to be exposed to different cultures and ideas. It's just unfortunate because that's a wonderful short made by an Asian American or Asian Canadian. In some way, Good for them for not understanding because it means they were not traumatized by their parents in any way. Because they're like, I don't understand. My parents were great people to me. No expectation. Must be nice. Yeah, must be nice. (laughs) So for someone that hasn't seen the short, what's about? Bao is about this mother who was making like a bun and then the bun becomes alive. And at first, you know, it was like a baby. She was taking care of it. But eventually the Bao, like the the food like gets older and older and like at first this goes through like you know wanting things you know i want to play soccer i want to go on dates i want to like you know growing through life and then she was angry she's like oh you can't do that you can't do this like you had to be with me 
Like, how dare you? And then I think it ends with her eating the bomb. Yeah, they had a big fight and then she eats them and then she goes cry in her room. And then finally her real kid comes in and actually the whole thing is a metaphor saying like the Bao was her son and at first she took care of the Bao, like took care of her son. The son grew up wanting things but she was super restricted so eventually he ran away from home because it was just too much, right? Like they probably had a big fight and he ran away. The son's now strange, right? Like they don't talk anymore. But of course the final scene was a feel good. Her son comes back and try to reconcile with her. And he brings buns, bows. Yes, he brings bows. Yeah, ties all together. Yes. Wow, that's that's very deep, guys. Very yeah. deep. It was only very short. I think it was like five minutes. Around Definitely there. worth the watch. Yeah. Um, I thought it was like, wow, that is super Asian American representation right here. I didn't want to cry so early into this movie, but here I am bawling my eyes out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, shit has like a moment like that, 10 out of 10, you know? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe some people are tone deaf because they're like, I've never experienced this kind of trauma in my life. I never, you know, I had a point where my parents are like, no, you can't do things that you like. And good for them in some way, you know, like... Mm, how dare they? <laughs> how dare they be happy while I'm miserable? Um, yeah, I think it's a very common thing for uh, Asian Americans to be like, you know, your parents go like, no, you had to come back home right after school. Yeah, do this for the family, do that for the family, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, I remember, like, it was, like, silly things, too. Like, I remember one time I was like, oh, I want money for viola lessons because I wanted to learn how to play a viola better. And my parents are like, no. I'm like, why not? We had, like, fights over it. And it, like, seems like a silly thing, right? Mm -hmm. But, like, to maybe another audience where, like, you know, parents are very supportive of, like, creative outlet but my parents like no you should be studying more and i'm like okay yeah i vividly remember saying can i go to this person's birthday party like why do you have friends go back to study yeah basically yeah it's very true like i want to go biking with my friends i want to just go outside like no just stay at home like just go read more books like Growing up, I was not allowed outside the house because they're like, no, you should just read more books. I vividly remember learning how to sneak out of the house or lying to my parents. I have a school assignment and that's the only way I could go and have fun. I, just, I don't know. I just got in a lot of fights with my parents for that. So um... Never stop fighting your parents. Put them in their place, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, my that was my motivation of like getting out of the house as soon as possible. Because at some point, I'm just like, I can't. This is tyranny. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I cannot... I'm not a robot, you know? Like, I can't just study all the time and then there's school and that's, that's it. I'm not you're, your you're not robot, dog. but you you are Asian, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just joking. But, uh, but yeah, like, the part about, like, getting money for your lessons, I, I feel that. I remember at one point, like, my parents cut me off and stopped giving me, like, money for Taekwondo lessons. So that was a bit sad because I really liked it. But, hey, life happens, right? So, you know, like, I think one big takeaway for me is, like, if a kid is interested in a hobby and they're willing to do it, like, I, I would 100% support them. So, and, you know, at some point they want to stop, I'll be like, okay, you can't just quit immediately, give it a little longer, but they really don't like it, you know, let them quit, right? Mm -hmm. Were you a part of that whole thing growing up where your parents forced you to play violin and piano even though you hated it? Oh, no, no, no. I was the opposite. My parents thought playing instruments was stupid. Oh, my sister was pushed... All that onto her. Oh, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I think it, I think it's more of a female thing because Asian parents tend to have like a more traditional mindset. Like, oh, females should have better at the arts and males should be better at STEM or something like that. I guess. So, yeah, my parents were like very on the 
point of, oh, no, you, you don't need any of this money for anything else but studying. I'll give you more money for more tutoring classes. And I'm like... Oh, God, I remember that. <laughs> I've had this conversation, too. I'm like, do I... I'm not even doing badly at school. Do I really need it? It's like, oh, then I guess you don't need anything. Hey, I'm man. Like, why aren't you getting hundreds in school? 80 is not enough. 90 yeah, is not where, enough. Where, where did the other 5% go? <sighs> Just a quick question. Like, it sounds like your parents are very strict on you when it comes to academic, right? Yeah. Like, my parents wanted me to do well, but, like, they weren't that tiger parent when it comes to grades. Like, I remember I would show them my report card when I was in, like... I don't know, grade five. And afterward, I just, I just started hiding my report card from them. And ever since then, like, they just stopped caring about my report card until, like, grade 12. Because that's when, like, it mattered, right? Dude, even through university, my parents like, I you need to show me your report card. I'm paying your... That's messed up. Yeah. That's messed up. It's, it's messed so messed up. up. But, like, it is what it is. And they're like, what, you're not getting 100? I'm like, <laughs> dude, do you know how hard it is to be at U of T? You know how hard it is to get 100 in a university course? Like, I don't think you understand the difficulty of this. Yeah. But yeah, growing up, uh, my mom was like, if you get not an A+, you're a failure. Mm-hmm. That is straight up how my parents treated me. Or like, especially my mom. I remember growing up, even through high school, my mom was like, get below a 90, you're a failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, 90 to 95 is pass in her mind. So... I remember about grade, it was going about grade 7. So I was like 12. I, I never shared a story of much, but I shared it now. I kid you not. This, I have a parent teacher. I'm like 12. I'm grade 7. And she saw my report card because that was the first time she saw it. Because oh. uh, she was just so busy. She showed up and she's like, she saw, I had actually like straight A's except like one B plus and like one A minus. And she's like, this is unacceptable. You're a failure. I want you to walk home after this. <laughs> I was 12. Yeah. Like, and I, I just start crying. Like, I don't know what to do, right? I start crying. And my teacher is like, because he spoke to all this in Cantonese, right? Yeah. And my, my teacher there was like, what the hell's going on? Because he was like, oh, you know, your son's a great student. He's doing really well. Like, he's doing really, like, he's socializing really well. Look at these grades. He's doing great. And my mom was just like, roasting me on the spot and I was just like crying my eyes out I, I was you know I was 12 I'm like I don't know what to do and then he she just got more angry She, her reaction wasn't like oh I'm sorry she just was like how dare you embarrass me right now <laughs> yeah and she did not talk to me for a week after that mm-hmm. she said when you got home uh, she's like you're not eating dinner tonight that was her reaction <laughs> so yeah. It may be cruel for the ones listening and hearing me laugh and Jackie smirk, but we're, <laughs> we're laughing and smirking because this is too relatable. This is like, this is like every like Asian American. Like I, I understand now that my mom was not perfect. She came off probably like a twenty hour shift. Yeah, shows up and she's like, I can't believe my kid's not getting a plus. Like this is ridiculous. Yeah. Why am I working so hard? Exactly. Right? But. It's traumatizing, and it took me, I want to say, like, that was happening at 12. My relationship with her did not even, like, repair till like, 22. I'm glad you repaired it, you know. Yeah, I, it I, it took me, it, it, was, it wasn't on her part. It, I felt like it was on my part to be a bigger man, to say, like... Nah. <laughs> nah, fuck To that. say, like, you know, she is human. She didn't know what she was doing. She did the best she could. She didn't intentionally 
be a bad parent. This is what she thought was the best way to parent me. I'm I'm surprised you took so. such a nuanced and mature approach. Because my approach now is you have to meet me in the middle or I'll get worse out of spite. <laughs> which admittedly is incredibly dangerous I and mean, toxic. I, I mean, here's the thing. Like, I'm not saying the trauma, like, never... And this is, like, one incident. There's been many, many Of course, like, there's no way this is one incident. Okay? Yeah, it's it's, it's never... thousands. <laughs> I just remember that straw being the one that broke the camel's back. At the age of 12, just to put it in perspective. Yeah. Like, no, of course. We all have like, a moment like yeah, that. Yeah, um... I just remember, like, this memory very vividly, because that was, like, my first memory. I was, like, that night, I was, like, that's it. Like, I, I cannot deal with my mom anymore. When I turn 18, I want to move out to the house, and I want to make money as soon as possible so I get rid of her from exactly. my Exactly. That's, like, everyone's mentality. <laughs> you know? You're, like, Shang-Chi. You're, like, I'm done with my dad. I'm running this. I'm running. A, like, I, like, thought of running away from home. No, of course. Like, same here. This is, just like... I still think about it. I want to leave the country <laughs> just to get away from that person I call a family member. Um... But yeah, it's it's rough, and you know I come to accept you know she's not perfect. You know I now spend time with her because you know at the end of the day she did raise me and she did her best. Um, but even to this day, if I spend more than twenty four hours with her, I still kind of go insane. No, of course. Like right. I get, I think best eight hours. Eight hours is about the max I can do with her, and then after that I'm like, yeah, I don't know, like That's eight hours more than me. That's accomplishment. Like, <laughs> like, bravo, sir. Yeah, she she starts nagging me again, and I'm like, really? Are we really going back to this? Yeah, no, I think like I remember at one point I did want to be a better son like you and just kind of like make amends, but then like the expectations just kept getting higher. Just, oh, I knew you can reach this level, so let me make you do more stuff or put more <laughs> pressure. Like I've had enough. I'm gonna fight you to the end of my my dying breath at this rate. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, you know, my mom never apologized. Um, I don't, I, I don't think, expect her I don't to. think any Asian parents yeah, ever Yeah, I don't never apologize, but I think... You, I don't think she even remembers. That's also true. That's also true. She probably, she probably, if I asked her, she'd probably like, that I don't never know happened. happened. This never happened. You're lying. Stop making things up. Yeah. You're such a bad son. You're a failure. Get out of my house. <laughs> never talk to me. <laughs> oh, this is too real, man. It's... Uh, but I think I've come to accept, you know, I don't expect apology from her. Uh, but I expect, you know, her to, from now on, just treat me a little more decently. Because if not, like, I come back to visit you not because I have to, because I want to. Oh, I, so. I visit my parents not because I want to, because I know you want this, and we only have so much time left together. <laughs> <laughs> what That's I'm trying to say dark. is I'm, a, I'm kind of a bad person, audience. I'm really sorry about <laughs> that. And I'm going through a lot of stuff right now. Uh, but yeah, I guess a little trauma story for the audience. So thank you everyone for listening to this episode of Real Rice Podcast. Make sure to follow us at Real Rice Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as your favorite podcasting apps and www.realricepodcast.com. Hope you can join us for another good serving of Real Rice Podcast. Your boy, Jackie. Peace out. <laughs> <sighs>